This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Uh, welcome everybody uh, here to uh, this event tonight. Now, it's quite interesting. We do spend an awful lot of money being good. And before I came here, I just had a look at some of the statistics for uh, how much we do spend uh, being nice uh, to the rest of the world. And I looked at the Charities Aid Foundation, who do an annual report on how much we give. Eight out of ten of us over the last year participated in some form of charitable giving or charitable event. The typical monthly amount that we give uh, to charities is £14. But how many of us test in any way, shape or form where that money goes, how effective the outcomes of that giving uh, are? Uh, In order of preference, according to the Charities Aid Foundation, we give to medical research first, 33% of us uh, give to some form of medical uh, charity, uh, followed by children and young people, uh, because they have particularly big eyes, and hospitals and hospices. My two speakers, William McCaskill, on my right, is the Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, co-founder of the Effective Altruism Movement, and of two non-profit organizations, giving what we can and 80,000 hours. They're two organizations that try and give people a sort of blueprint, I suppose, uh, uh, for how to use their time and money effectively as possible to fight some of the world's kind of most pressing issues that we're here to discuss. He has pledged to donate everything you earn above 20,000 pounds to charities, to, oh no, sorry, to organizations, may not be charities, he believes will do the most good. Will, welcome. Thank you. To my left, Giles Fraser, parish priest at St. Mary's Newington in South London. More famously, of course, he was the canon chancellor of St. Paul's Cathedral until he resigned in 2011 over the treatment of the Occupy protesters camped outside the cathedral. He writes the loose canon column for The Guardian and is a regular colleague of mine broadcasting on Radio 4. Will has written a brilliant book, which I have read. And I'm going to talk to you, Will, about that to kick ourselves off for the first uh, few minutes. I will be coming to the audience for comments, thoughts, 
opinions, questions actually more so, uh, as this event uh, progresses. So, Will, you're obviously someone who wanted a quiet life. Um, here are some of the arguments from your book. Giving, giving to disaster relief is not the best way to help. Buying sweatshop-produced goods is a good thing. Buying fair trade achieves little. Typical charities do a hundred times less good than the best charities. Don't give to developed world cancer charities. I slightly paraphrase that last one, but I'm a journalist, so... <laughs> Will, what do you mean by effective altruism? So effective altruism is about using your time and money as effectively as possible to make the world a better place. Um, it's about going with high-quality evidence, careful reasoning, and in-depth research to make your decisions, rather than merely going with kind of what's emotional or what's sexy at the time. So to illustrate this in the book, I talk about difference between uh, a program called the Play Pump, which everyone thought was going to be this amazing revolution within development. It was a children's merry-go-round that would pump clean water up from the ground, uh, providing water for the uh, people of the village. So it was meant to be like a win-win. Children would get their first playground amenity, and people of the village would get water um, for their basic needs. And the only problem was that it was an absolutely terrible idea. So despite this huge amount of media hype, tens of millions of dollars that went into funding, it was an absolute disaster from the start. Uh, even though, unlike normal merry-go-rounds, which need, you push them and they spin freely, these require constant torque in order to pump the water. Children would get very tired and therefore wouldn't want to pump the water all day. Uh, it was left up to the elderly women of the village to push these things. <laughs> They'd find this incredibly dignified, very undemeaning. In some villages, children were paid to push the pumps. Uh, they'd also sometimes fall off um, and break limbs and sometimes vomit from the spinning. Uh, what's more, the people of, this, of the community has never been asked whether they actually wanted these things. And when they were consulted, they said they much preferred the boring but, and unsexy but functional Zimbabwe hand pumps that they'd replaced. Uh, and all of this... Uh, cost three times the amount of the hand pumps that they'd placed, producing smaller amounts of water. And thankfully, all this came to light. And uh, the Case Foundation and other sponsors actually withdrew their funding. Though the organization does still continue in a diminished capacity. Uh, so that was um, a program that got a huge amount of attention, but actually wasn't a very good idea at all. And we can contrast this with something you might not have heard about, which is deworming schoolchildren. So over the billion people actually suffer from intestinal worms uh, that don't kill as many people as malaria or tuberculosis or HIV-AIDS, but they make the lives of many people, especially children, sick. And a couple of economists went to sub-Saharan Africa, and rather than thinking, okay, we actually want to just implement what we think is going to be a great idea, textbooks, they went and tested a number of different things. Actually found that textbooks didn't have an impact. They found that um, reducing class sizes didn't have an impact. But providing these incredibly cheap drugs, only about 30 pence per person, um, and distributing them en masse to all the children in the community via schools, they could drastically improve school attendance rates, and when they followed up 10 years later, significantly improve economic outcomes, number of hours worked and the amount these people were earning. So this, you know... Talking about worms is not a sexy thing to talk about. It's kind of gross, it's kind of boring, but actually, it's, despite being one of the least sexy development interventions, it's actually this astoundingly powerful way to do good. 
So the idea of effective altruism is, both with our time and our money, how can we avoid being like play pumps and instead uh, try and do things like deworming, the things that really work as well as possible? Well, it's very interesting reading the play pumps example in your book, which you, you tell in a, in a brilliant way, is, is the idea that um, it, took, it took off um, uh, sort of politically, uh, celebrity endorsements mm -hmm. um, for a long time before anyone seemed to bother actually testing the outcomes. Yep. And I think it was UNICEF in the end that did yep. the research that showed all the problems you say yep. uh, happened. Yep. Talk us through um, why it is that um, we will commit often large amounts of money to projects of that type without doing any form of a testing of whether or not the outcomes are likely to be good ones. Great. So there's a couple of things going on. Uh, one is that there's this structural problem when it comes to doing good, which is lack of feedback mechanisms. So if you buy a really lousy laptop, then you get it in the mail and... You see, okay, no, this is an awful product. You get to know immediately what you've bought, and you can assess whether that was worth your money or not. When it comes to donating, you just give the money to this organization. You have to put all your faith that they're going to use that money well. You never really find out what that money was used for. So if it was used badly or used very well, uh, you never know. And that means it's possible for organizations like the Play Pump to keep going without people ever realizing that actually this is a very bad use of money. Um, so the people spending the money are different from the beneficiaries, and that's a, a problem when it comes to learning. And the second thing, I think, is just uh, often people really don't know just how much of a discrepancy there is between different ways of doing good. I think people often think making a difference could be easy because, you know, if you've got good intentions, that's what um, is going to produce good outcomes. Whereas I think that's just very often not the case. In fact... Uh, about 75% of social programs, when tested, are found to have no effect at all. And even within those that work, there's discrepancies of something like a factor of 100 between the ones that merely work well and the ones that are really the very best. And this is very counterintuitive. Uh, and so I think that's something that um, people neglect or haven't really thought about when it comes to doing good. Well, give us the, in the book you give um, sort of three rules, really, for um, how to at least test what you are doing and what you are giving does uh, reach the bar of what you describe as effective altruism. Um, talk us through those uh, three, three rules. Terrific. So the first is asking yourself the question, how many people am I going to benefit and by how much? So you might think, well, it's just impossible to compare different ways of doing good, different forms of charity, and so on. But there's one thing that it, all this really bottoms out on, which is improvements in people's lives. So if you can save 100 people's lives, that's better than saving one person's life. If you can prevent someone from becoming severely disabled, that's better than preventing someone from getting a migraine for some time. And economists have used this kind of basic insight on intuition and built it into a metric that's called the quality-adjusted life year. It's a very boring term, but the idea is just that you can improve someone's life in two ways. If they're have a happy, healthy life, you can extend their life while they are alive, or what we call saving someone's life. Really, we've never ever saved someone's life because people always die at some point. Uh, the second way in which you can uh, improve someone's life is just to improve their quality of life while they are alive. And using this metric, you can look at different sorts of programs and assess how big is the impact on this pro of this program on people's lives. And that brings us to the second question, which is, is this the most effective thing I can do? Because people often think, 
well, as long as you're making a difference, that's what's important. There's this very common slogan, making a difference. But even among things that work very well, there's a massive discrepancy in what works well and what works extremely well. So if you provide a treatment for Kaposi's sarcoma, uh, which is a type of cancer, skin cancer, that um, you can get if you've got HIV and it defines um, uh, you having AIDS, uh, that'll cost about £20,000 to give one person the equivalent of one year of very high-quality health. You can do that same amount of good with only £100 by distributing long-lasting insecticide-treated bed nets. So there's a factor of 100 here between two things that are both well worth funding, both doing good, measurably, um, but by distributing bed nets, you're having 100 times as much out, um, impact measured in terms of improvements of people's lives. Uh, so the final question then is, is this area neglected? And this is because, in general, um, things just have diminishing marginal returns. So your first Cadbury's cream egg is delicious, your fourth really starts to make you feel sick. Um, money, if you're very poor, is worth a lot more than money if you're very well off. Um, and that actually becomes very powerful because it means often following the crowd is exactly what you don't want to do when it comes to doing good. And this relates um, to Kamal mentioned disaster relief, for example. So obviously I think that disaster relief should be funded. Obviously I think it's very important. But the issue is just that it gets far more funding than what I'd call ongoing natural disasters. Things like the 400,000 people who die from malaria or the hundreds of thousands of people who die from tuberculosis or HIV AIDS. They get a lot less attention, a lot less publicity, and so therefore don't get the same amount of funding. And that means that you can do a lot more good by targeting them. You'll have a bigger impact measured in terms of improvements to people's lives than if you were to fund most disaster relief programs. Does that mean, Will, that we should all just simply give money to malarial bed net charities? So the question, this is another important issue, is uh, the question of what am I going to do on the margin, given how everyone else is acting, versus what would happen if everyone did this? Because I think we often think, well, what would, if everyone did that? Um, neglecting the fact that, you know, most of the time, most people aren't going to do this. So uh, if it were the case that I could wave a magic wand or I was just very persuasive and everyone in the UK started following my advice, then, of course, we'd have to broaden out beyond malaria. So Against Malaria Foundation, one of the charities that I um, recommend very highly, uh, they have room for more funding, the amount of money they could uh, plausibly cope with of about £15 million. Pounds. Um, UK giving would easily swamp that, and so we need to move on to the next most effective thing after that, and the next most effective thing after that. But given that other people aren't doing that, given that Against Malaria Foundation still has this funding need, then I think that, yeah, pretty much you as an individual should just give all of your donations so your lack to of, that best place. Your lack of persuasive ability means that we should be giving to malarial charities until you've convinced enough of us, that's and then right. we can stop and move on to the next one down the list. Yeah, that's exactly right. Fabulous. Okay, well. So, Giles, um, being effective when doing good is a good thing. Um, is that a question? Uh, better, no, I'm, it's okay. a statement. Uh, I have no opinions as a, a <laughs> member of the BBC. Um, um, I'm just saying... Just putting Will's point, um, uh, is better than just simply uh, putting money in things with no notion of what the effectiveness of that money um, is. Uh, but, Giles, some people might uh, say that the whole point of altruism is that it doesn't fit very neatly into economists' spreadsheets and Edexcel outputs uh, about uh, cost-benefit analysis, and that altruism is a 
human instinct. Um, Giles, how do you react to Will's uh, overarching argument that unless it's effective, you are wasting that altruistic instinct? Um, I don't like arguing with Will because Will's a saint and there's, no, there's nothing to be had with... There's no upside to arguing with someone <laughs> as good and saintly and as interesting as Will. And I said to him in the green room before, I said, I, I always, if I'm arguing with someone, I always like to... I like to just imagine that I really don't like them in some particular way and then have a... And I just... You're, you're just bloody brilliant, mate. But... He suggested but, he didn't like my sideburns. Yeah, I did say that. <laughs> He's just going to focus on that for the whole talk. <laughs> but here's the problem. So, but I do have a... But I do have a... I do have a problem with it. Um, and, and I have a problem with this whole idea of effective. Um, and I want to give you an example of why I have a problem with it, and we can have a, have a look at this. Um, philosophers love the burning building scenario. So you've got uh, two rooms, the building is burning, and you can save either the thing in one room or the thing in the other, and that's the choice that you have. So imagine there's a child in one room and there's a Picasso in the other. The, the, the building is burning. Now, the effective altruist could argue that you can sell the Picasso for many millions and with those millions give that money to charity, to a malaria net charity, which will then save a great many, on a cost-benefit analysis, will save a great many more children. Okay, So the effective altruist faced with a burning Picasso and a burning child might save the burning Picasso. Now, at this point, my sympathy for effective altruists just disappears. And it disappears because I think there really is something that's not factored in here, which is the emotional uh, sympathy, which is absolutely essential, which you have done everything you can to eliminate from our calculations. But I would call the person, and we disagree about this, I mean, I think the technical term for the person that saves the Picasso, and, and I think this would be a sort of, I think publicly I would get a lot of support for this, maybe not here, but out there, that the technical term for the person that saves the Picasso over the burning child is a heartless bastard. <laughs> That's my problem with effective okay. altruism. And just to supplement that, if you get rid of if you try and eliminate that emotional uh, aspect to um, uh, why, people, why people give, I actually think you'd find less people wanting to give. So here's my problem. I think you might be good at the distribution bit, but you might not be so good at the money-raising bit. I mean, the, the problem is, is if we all turned over to effective altruism, and it turns out that the, the pot to be used effectively was considerably smaller because you weren't engaging our sympathies, then actually the problem with effective altruism is it's not being effective. So those are my two anxieties. I've got a number of other anxieties, but the problem one is yep. sympathy. What happened to sympathy, Will? Let's start, well, let's start with the Picasso um, child in the burning building. Which, what would okay. you do, Will? Okay, terrific. So first question is, do you think the lives of African children are less important than the life, the life of that child in the no. burning building. Okay. Now, if the case was one child in that burning building or a thousand children in the other building... No, it's building. not that. It's not that. Don't but change the case. No, no. Don't I, change the case. And Giles, 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 hang on. Yeah, go on, Will. Go on. Okay. In that, you, ca in that case, what ought you to do? 
In that case, in that case, what a hundred children and a yeah. Actually, it'd probably be a thousand children. Fine, I would yep. uh, I would save the thousand children. Okay, in the world we live in, which is a very morally counterintuitive world, it's not a world in which our moral intuitions are well adjusted. There is no difference between that Picasso case and the case where there's a thousand children in one and but one child really in the other. Is. There really because, is a difference because you're because there are many many people out there who are effectively in that burning building. They effectively are at risk of dying right now. And you just have a slightly more indirect causal mechanism, which is taking a Picasso and selling it and making a million and then giving it. And so those people are far away. And you say that's a lack of sympathy. But actually, it's a more cultivated sense of sympathy. You're just empathizing with the person who's right there in front of you, whereas the person who's willing to reflect on those arguments they're able to sympathize with people on the other side of the world who are just in need of help. So the answer is, yeah, I would save the Picasso. And I agree that this seems weird, but that's because we're in a very weird world, a world where money is so incredibly powerful. And can I just ask a question? Do you think, on, once you've done that, the next day, the front page of The Sun and the uh, Daily Mail... And the BBC think, website, frankly. And the yeah. BBC website are going to think, well done, Will McCaskill, we really like his charity. Do you think your charity is going to be bigged up by your... And as it were, donations are going to pour in on the basis of the decision that you made? Okay, so there's two things. One is that um, you're now building more into the case. So, you know, you want to think about what are going to be these long-run effects. But secondly, on the sympathy thing, I actually just disagree that this is going to undermine giving. So... I set up Giving What We Can a few years ago, which encourages people to give at least 10% of their earnings. As of today, we've raised half a billion dollars of pledge don lifetime pledge donations. And this is set up by a couple of kind of bumbling philosophers in Oxford. It's not like, um, you know, it's not like we're very skilled marketing people or anything. GiveWell, which is a charity that does evaluation into other charities to find out what are most effective, they've now influenced, they've got, are now advising a foundation of $8 billion to do more good. The kind of growth of interest in effective altruism is rising and rising. And I think it's precisely because so many people are tired of the same old appeals where, uh, you know, you're just getting these emotive images and people are saying, okay, you should give to this thing and make you feel guilty and you don't know what's happening with the money. Whereas actually saying, having this different voice where you're saying, no, look, we're just really concerned about where I can do the most good. And, you know, this all started because I was planning to give away most of my income and I just... Want to know that, you know, that million pounds or so that I'm going to give over my lifetime is well spent. We're talking about evidence. Giles, what evidence do you have that Will saving the Picasso over the child in the burning building will actually mean the number of donations to Will's charities will go down? Is that just your instinct? Who'd save the Picasso? Hands up. Well, I was going to say that. Who'd save the burning child? I don't know what to say. These are human beings, Will, I suppose, is the yeah. issue, isn't it? And human but, beings don't operate but, on, ration, but, in, on rational calculus. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. But there's just two different questions, which is like, well, what's actually correct? And then what should you go around kind of promoting? So maybe you, for example, are in favor of just open borders between states. You just think all refugees should be let in. But you might think, look, you just shouldn't promote that because no one's, you know, people are going to find that too radical instead if you advocate for an incrementalist policy. That's fine, but that doesn't, you know, if we're going to have a debate about whether open borders is true, then let's just put the kind of strategic or marketing issues. But to the you side. use the word effective. Mm -hmm. And my, my thing is that the people who give, for good or ill, are not uh, 
uh, beings that make that cost-benefit analysis. You might think that they should be, but they don't make that cost-benefit analysis. They actually give out of um, other reasons. So if there's the, the, the my charity and the your charity, your charity simply uses cost-benefit analysis. My charity may not give to the most effective mm-hmm. causes, but as it were, has a greater emotional appeal such that more people would give to it, mm-hmm. and, 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 and thereby there will be more money to go round mm-hmm. for effective charities and not-so-effective charities, if that was the choice between us, then surely you would have to say that my more emotional charity was the more effective charity. Yeah, I mean, I think if it was a choice... So, again, we're trading thought experiments because we're both philosophers, Um, even if you turned your back on philosophy, sadly. (laughs) Um, You should should come back to the fold. You're very good. Um, So, okay, we've got two charities... Um, one is going to be very effective, but it'll, let's say it'll be very small because it just can't get in the funding. One's going to be less cost-effective in terms of dollar per um, amount of good you do, but will be much, much larger because so many people get involved. If it's a question of which charity should you set up, then yeah, you should set up the, most, um, the more emotionally um, uh, impressive one because then you're just going to do more good. But that's just a separate question from where ought I to give. If I'm then thinking where should I give between these two charities... I should give to the one that does the most good per dollar. And so it's just we need to keep these questions separate. Well, let's go through some of the examples you have in your book. That's, that's one of them, and there are, there are myriad examples, a lot of them controversial in, in what you might describe as headline um, mm-hmm. terms. So buying sweatshop goods is a good thing. Mm-hmm. So talk us through. I'm sure a lot of people in here would be horrified at the notion of uh, buying clothing, for example, from a company that was revealed to be running or, or getting their product from sweatshops in Bangladesh, for example. Now, you make a game, what might, some might describe as a counterintuitive mm-hmm. argument about this. Take us through that. Okay, so I think a lot of people... Um, so you know, sweatshops and ethical consumerism gets a lot of attention. Um, and... What's absolutely true is sweatshops are just really horrific places. Um, absolutely no one denies that. They're just, um, you know, the working hours are very long, um, often dangerous. Um, they're very unple- unpleasant env- environments. Uh, the question, though, is if you boycott sweatshop-produced goods, are you benefiting those people by doing so? And if you want to answer yes, then you're implicitly thinking that's because they'd go off and get some other job, some better job, if they weren't employed by the sweatshop. Um, but sadly, that's just not the case. Uh, so, if you in- firstly, the wages in these places are just much higher than they would otherwise be taking. taking. If you interview people that work there, they say, yeah, the conditions are hot, but at least it is a job. My alternatives are unemployment, um, far more arduous, backbreaking farm labor, labor, scavenging, prostitution. And so, uh, if you boycott sweatshop-produced goods, then all you're doing is taking away the best working opportunity that these people in very poor countries have. And I think, again, the reason that this is so confusing for us is just because it's really almost impossible to imagine how extreme, extreme poverty is. So the poorest um, billion people in the the world live in less than one pound a day, where that means what one pound would buy in the UK. It already takes into account the fact that money goes further overseas. And sure, the world in which we're employing people in sweatshops is really not a world that we want to end. It's not a world we want to have. But the solution to that is to end the underlying poverty. It's not to take away the best opportunities they currently have. Giles, do you find that... I mean, Paul Krugman, no less, eminent economist, said that sweatshops were tremendous good 
news for the very reasons yeah. that Will uh, posits there. But again, the emotional response, Charles, which is where you, know, you, put, you put on the table this evening, uh, would be, I don't want to do that. I don't want to buy stuff from people who are forced to work <coughs> in terrible conditions for 14 hours a day. Because people don't probably know that the alternative is possibly worse. Yeah, no, I mean, on, and on this example, I find it more persuasive. Um, but my problem here switches to another sort of problem, which is the, the sort of political quietism, mm -hmm. it might want to say, about effective altruism, which there may be people who say, ah, oh, the problem here with a world that has sweatshops in and so forth is a problem with global capitalism, say, and that actually what would be a more effective way of uh, dealing with this long-term is to challenge political structures. Now, I don't know how your analysis adjudicates mm -hmm. between me giving my money to an effective charity and me giving it to, uh, a, a, as, as it were, a political advocacy organisation mm -hmm. that tries to challenge the... I mean, now yeah. we're getting into obviously very complicated areas of political uh, difference and disagreement, mm -hmm. but actually there will be people who will think that that's really what's the problem here. Right. Yeah, so I'm mm. quite open to a political ways of doing good. Um, so, for example, you know, something where we're both in favour of um, increased amounts of labour mobility across countries. Um, this is an incredibly, like, potentially an incredibly powerful way to improve people's lives, because you can take them... People can leave countries where they're uh, incredibly disempowered, don't have any opportunities to be productive, go to a much more productive environment at what is actually just um, either small cost or small benefit to the receiving country. Um, so there's definitely potential to maybe do even more good through political change. Uh, there, though, you have to think a few things. So one is you're much less likely to have an impact Sure, the impact's going to be greater, but you are much less likely. And so there's going to be this difficult weighing between just how good do you think this would be if you were successful and um, you know, how likely is it that you are going to be successful. And maybe, maybe you know, that will work out, actually, that you should do it, but also maybe not, and I think it's at least unclear. Um, second, though, is as well, is like if you are going to um, focus on political issues, a good heuristic, I think, is what I call pulling the rope sideways. So loads of things involve this political tug of war. So if you wanted to you know, change the abortion debate in the US or something, it's just already so many vested interests, it seems very unlikely that you're going to make a difference on that. Whereas if you're talking about the use of metrics within DFID, then you know, there's not so much um, political disagreement there. You've got much greater potential to actually have an impact. Uh, and so in terms of the policy... So it's the middle management approach to... Um, <laughs> you just lost your ambition what? there. You've just lost your ambition to change the world. It's just, it's it's something... just about taking the most effective means to that. So it's pointless. Um, but what happens if, if the problem you're is a... systemic, Will? But I think, we, like, I, mean, I think immigration is a systemic thing, and maybe we should push on that. I mean, I think if the stakes are high enough, then we should push on it. There is, a, there is, think... a, there is an argument. I think there is an argument which I think Giles does touch on uh, here, which is about... Uh, democratic control and what you're actually trying to alleviate. Throughout the book, you really, you really are often talking about the, the alleviation of extreme... 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv at evernorth health services we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best it's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Been poverty, mm-hmm. which is really yeah. the driving force about what effective altruism might be about. Mm-hmm. But of course, other people in this audience and in the country and around the world at large may have other priorities mm-hmm. uh, that actually it is about supporting their local hospice and localism is very important and mm-hmm. part of sort of human society. And also, under your method, isn't there a danger that we kind of treasure what we can measure and stuff that we can't measure, we therefore think, well, that can't be effective or mm-hmm. we don't know whether it's effective, therefore we won't do it. So things like yeah. localism, like community, like some senses that economists find difficult mm-hmm. to judge, therefore fall out of, of this effective altruism. Is, is, is that a danger? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely the first to agree that we want to be careful with this lovely slogan, treasure what you can measure. Uh, Because, for sure, so things like, you know, uh, biomedical research spending, very difficult to measure the impact of that, but clearly doing huge, huge amounts of good. Potentially other, you know, forms of systemic change as well. Uh, And um, in the book I talk um, a bit about this, about how we can still potentially have some sort of framework. So, you know, with respect to cause areas outside of global poverty, I ask... You know, these three questions. Firstly, you know, how good would this be if you were successful? Secondly, is how tractable is this? How fast can you make progress on this? And thirdly, um, you know, how neglected is it? So is it an area that already has lots of people focused on it? And uh, if something does very well in those three dimensions, then potentially it's something that, you know, you could reasonably think is going to do even more good than these easily measurable things. Uh, but I think... The key is not to go... People often want to vacillate between either just going with the numbers or saying, well, anything counts then. And that's definitely not what gets entailed. You can still have a very um, 
you know, rational approach to this, even if you're not merely going with numbers. So you mentioned localism, for example. And I think just any sort of argument, unless you're just saying, I think the lives of people in my home country are more important than the lives of people elsewhere, unless you're willing to say that, then... Uh, the argument but for people donating might locally. That. Is, is, that, is, that, is, that, is that an instinct that is a, is a reasonable one? People might say that. A lot, of, a lot of charitable giving, the argument is that we do too much abroad, therefore we should do more at yeah. home, so to speak. I'm sure yeah. the argument is similar across many particularly developed countries. Is that a reasonable proposition? Yeah, so, I mean, I think there we're going to get into moral philosophy rather than facts, um, <laughs> or uh, <laughs> empirical facts. Um, <laughs> And, I mean, then I just think... But it touches no, again on of, Giles's point, because it, it uh, might spark greater giving, a greater propensity to give, mm-hmm. if you believe it is going to a local charity. Whatever we may yeah. think of the moral position, okay. but it gives a greater propensity to give, because people think, well, it's going to That's my right. local community, which I think so, is very important. So it might spark a greater propensity to give, but to outweigh the difference in impact, it would have to be vastly greater. So, uh, in my book, I talk about the income disparity. So... We in this room, uh, actually just today I was talking about how if you wanted you could trick an audience by saying, should the richest 10% in the world all donate 10% of their income? Doing so would eradicate extreme poverty. And everyone would say, yeah, yeah. And then I reveal you're all in the richest 10% of the world's population already. Um, So globally we are exceptionally wealthy. We're in financial terms 100 times richer than the very poorest people in the world. And that actually means um, that you can do... When you, economists have looked at how money changes into improvements to people's lives, obviously the more money you have, the less of an impact you have. Um, and you will do 100 times as much to benefit those very poor, the very poorest people in the world as you will do to benefit someone in a rich country like the UK or US um, if you're spending your money. So if it was to spark more giving, it would have to be at least 100 yes. times as much. And that seems very unlikely. One more point, Giles, and then questions, questions, questions. So what are the best... Forest of hands, I want to say. What, what Forest are, of hands. One of the great counterintuitive things that you have to say, uh, Will, we haven't touched on, is don't go into the charity sector. Don't, uh, go, don't go be a, a priest or anything like that. It's like, go and work for Goldman Sachs and then give a higher percentage of your income away to charity, and you'll be doing more good if you're working for Goldman Sachs and giving more money away than you would for than working in a, a going and being a charitable worker in Africa or something like that. Now, of course, we get it in terms of pounds, shillings, and pence. Absolutely get that. But again, this seems to be a sort of uh, a myopia about the nature of the human person here. That actually, this mythical question mark Goldman Sachs. Uh, uh, giver? No, they're not mythical. I think they, I'm, I'm sure that they exist, yeah. but but the, the, they. Well, Goldman so, Sachs bankers or Goldman Sachs bankers okay, that so, give money. That give. That give. <laughs> those. Yeah. I'm sure there are Goldman Sachs bankers that give very generously. <laughs> of course, that's right. But the idea that you have a sort of scale where you come out with this interesting counterintuitive mm-hmm. thing, where you know the Goldman Sachs banker is uh, considerably uh, better, doing more effective doing more effective work, it's, it, again, it is about a diminution of the, the wells of sympathy that we normally draw upon when we, when we give. And though I get the rational case for this, I think there are so many unexpected consequences in, in, in saying we should all go and be 
Goldman Sachs bankers and give to charity. That's what I should be telling my daughter to do if she wants to do good. Yeah, well, two sentences, and I mean that. Uh, then now, who's over here for questions? Two sentences, okay. we'll carry on. So, uh, there's the a quick thing there, there yep. is just, I think uh, you can do good in a wide variety of career paths. Example of someone who has pursued this was thinking about doing a philosophy PhD, oh, but actually much preferred working in finance, worked in quantitative trading, in an area of finance that I think is socially valuable rather than harmful. I wouldn't be nearly as keen on someone going into Goldman unless they were going to do some sabotage. Um, <laughs> and so uh, I think that... Um, we apologise uh, to anybody who's from Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Yeah. I kept a completely Depends neutral the face there. I hope everyone <laughs> nice. noticed. Uh, and so, you know, I think these kind of personal factors are important. And earning to give, which is an approach I recommend, is one path among many. Currently, no one does it, and I think it's important. But it is not the only one. Great. Gentleman there. Hi, Damien Kilman. Um, from? You, from Dudil. Um, I was wondering, you talk about treasure what you measure. Um, what are the time horizons for measurement? Because um, a lot of these uh, things that have an impact will also have uh, a reaction. So how do you measure um, and, and what time horizon is an acceptable time horizon? Excellent. There's a chapter behind you, and that'll be the first three. Thanks. We'll have hands here next. And there. Yeah. I'm yes, Mark, Mark Goldring. I'm the chief executive of Oxfam. Yes, excellent. And I was keen to reflect and ask, because there's a huge amount in what Will's been promoting that I see already doing a great deal of good. That sense of people asking harder, really wanting reports on impact rather than PR st stories, and people getting behind that, and that itself creating more momentum to give. Where I want to challenge is on two fronts. The first is that I've worked in many countries, and if I just take one example from two countries, you can get children who are not in school into school a hell of a lot more cheaply than you in, say, a middle-income country like Bangladesh than you can in a desperately poor country like South Sudan. Now, the analysis says give your money to Bangladesh. But people in Bangladesh are just that one step closer to climbing out of poverty, whereas those people in South Sudan are not going to get anywhere without your help. So this kind of cost-benefit analysis yeah. risks walking away from that, and I'd like to hear your thought. But my most fundamental point is that the very practical approach, such as malaria bed nets, is really good as one element of bringing about change. But those people who have bed nets will still have no uh, fresh water, they'll have no anti-diarrheal drugs, but most importantly, they'll have a really weak health system. So you can move on from your issue around malaria to the next disease to the next disease, but that doesn't bring system change. It doesn't ch tackle the causes that are keeping people poor. And so if you look at those big issues that have changed public health, they've actually been when governments have started responding to citizens, when tax has been paid, when public services have been well run, when antiretrovirals have come down in price, all those kinds of things. So I do appreciate that you did say 
that lobbying, campaigning, policy change was not contrary to the philosophy, but it doesn't fit into it very easily. And I think it's that that we're going to need if we're going to take a billion people out of poverty rather than give a million people better bed nets. Mark, can I just ask you before you sit down? The charitable sector, Will's big point is that the charitable sector has failed in giving the public evidence, proper evidence, not just feel warm evidence, about what it does. And there has been a failure of the whole sector in that. Do you think that's a fair criticism? I think it's an absolutely fair challenge, which is why I welcome the Is it a fair criticism? Uh, It is of some charities. I mean, as Will himself says, Oxfam publishes effectiveness reviews of our work on our website. So it's not the PR, it's we set out to do this, did we do it or didn't we do it? But that's not the standard way that any charity communicates with the public. So the movement that Will is rightly challenging will improve charities and will improve charitable giving. I really commend it. I just don't agree with applying it, as it were, pound for pound, because sometimes I want to support those children in South Sudan just as much as the children in India. Fabulous. Thank you very much. How do you test yourself on measurement and for for how long? Because it was interesting, your Kenya example about education, Mm -hmm. they did test the notion of giving textbooks um, and found that actually deworming was a much greater effect because children actually could go to school rather than being off ill for large Mm -hmm. chunks um, of the year. But obviously, one would hope, as the deworming has great effect, the giving out of textbooks and improving the number of teachers Mm -hmm. might be the next stage. Mm -hmm. And actually, your support might change from deworming charities towards maybe charities that support the giving of textbooks. I don't know. But how long do you keep those measurements going? Yeah, so uh, I think a really good point here is just that a lot of the cases the measurements are too short. Or, like, it would be really nice to have much longer-term measurements for a lot of these trials that we rely on. And deworming is actually kind of an exception in this regard, that we do have evidence from a decade later they've actually followed up with people. And that's part of what makes the case for deworming so strong, much stronger than for other areas. Um, And so, you know, in principle, measurement, we want that to go out just till the end of the human race, or till the stars die away. We just want it to go on forever. Obviously, that's not possible in principle. So um, if we are doing programs that we can measure, then we want to try and get as long-term perspective as possible. Um, But it is the case that often you you just need to focus on shorter-term proxies. And Um, Mark's point that on cost-benefit analysis, what he describes as middle-income country, Bangladesh, will get more support than Mm -hmm. the poorest residents of South Sudan. Great. So, yeah, a few things to say. So one is that, yeah, Oxfam's, especially in recent years, absolutely great in publishing um, evaluations of what it's been doing, including, and this is something we should really applaud it for, evaluations showing that the programs don't work. Um, If a charity says they've evaluated a program it didn't work, that increases my confidence in the charity rather than decreases it, because you know they're being transparent. Um, Where I'd like Oxfam to go even further is not just evaluating things after the fact, but strategically making decisions of, look, we know that this is an area with really great evidence behind it, and that therefore we're going to focus on that rather than focusing on causes for other reasons. Um, In terms of focusing on the poorest, I think there's a couple of things with the South Sudan example. One is just... So in general, you're almost always going to be focusing on the very poorest people in the world. 
um, if you're thinking about who to benefit, uh, precisely because just money does less good. So it's quite an unusual case if it were the case that you should focus on Bangladesh rather than um, South Sudan. Though I agree that, you know, that it could turn out that way. But we'd all want to agree with that. If it, you can save one life in South Sudan or 100 people in Bangladesh, again, to keep it, use these simplified examples, then obviously you should save the 100 lives. Um, you wouldn't want to uh, privilege people in one country rather than another. It is true that in certain failed states, I mean, maybe it's just really nothing we can do at the moment in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And there you just have to wait for things to improve before it's, you know, things could at least potentially be so bad. You need some civil society. That's right. To to exist as country. To have an impact. And that's just would be a very sad state of the world indeed. Then, sorry, the final question Mark asked was just about, again, systemic change and campaigning and so on. And there again... Yeah, perfectly possible in theory. Um, one issue is just we really don't know what the causes of poverty are. Economists study this for decades, and there's still just very violent disagreement about it. Um, and that's like going to be a challenge. So I'm all in favor of trying to improve regulations. If you could have something like removing the common agricultural subsidy, the fact that um, the EU and the US and Japan all subsidize their own production... That's, you know, there's quite a lot of agreement there that that's bad. Not actually even bad for the home countries, but put that to the side. But certainly very bad for the poor. If we have the opportunity to change that, then absolutely we should go ahead with it. Other things get very more complicated. And one thing we should worry about a little bit as well is, you know, if you're giving someone health, that's one of the bases of self-respect. It's one of these things that everyone wants. Whereas if you're going and trying to change someone's political systems, then you're starting to interfere with national autonomy. And so there's some reasons there for being a little bit more wary as well. But in principle, I'm open to many of these things. Giles. Will, you just said something really interesting. You said, um, we don't know what causes poverty. Um, If we don't know what causes causes poverty, how do we know when we're measuring, we're measuring the right things? Because you Mm -hmm. talk a lot about measuring. Measuring is really big for you. It's, Mm -hmm. It's an alien idea for me. But uh, it's a big, big and important thing for you. But how do you know you're actually measuring the things that are appropriate to finding out about poverty okay, if you don't so, really know what causes poverty? Yeah, so the question is... One question is, do we think that aid will have a long-run effect on economic development? And in terms of high-quality evidence, we actually just don't know. Basically, we just don't have the statistical power to be able to tell. Um, aid is just such a tiny proportion of income going into countries that it's not something we can measure in that way. And so you've got to just use... Well, there's two things. Firstly, even if it didn't have a long-run effect on economic development, saving a child's life, I think, is still extremely important. I think the direct benefit is still very important. And then secondly, just kind of using common sense. Like, if you're um, allowing... You look so shocked at the idea of common sense. Well, I just, like, suddenly... <laughs> it's not more common... Well, Will, I can understand that. Common sense is not empirical, is it? So common sense is the one thing that you've been departing from, so suddenly to return to it is just the point at which I do feel quite shocked about your position, that somehow underpinning it is a return to common sense. Well, I think common sense is of some value. It's just not the be-all and end-all, which is um, what sometimes uh, uh, portrayed as. And so, you know, if you're preventing someone from suffering from malaria or suffering from... Uh, worms, or if you're providing someone with more money to invest in a tin roof rather than a thatch roof that they have to replace every two years, it would be kind of surprising if that didn't have longer-run economic benefits. And that's we can't... just the immediate... I mean, you're doing a version of what I did with the Picasso. You're just doing the immediate thing. You can immediately save... Here, you know, I can I measure think it, I, can I think, Giles, it. I think, Giles, what is, it's not mm-hmm. binary. 
It's not all one or all the other, but that the, the, there should be a move on the dial towards what Will is arguing, not no getting dis- rid of Then we have everything. no disagreement. Well, we have lots of disagreement, yeah. but well, we that, have... I think that's the point that Will is making. I'm not sure it is. Okay. Let's have some questions. <laughs> the lady here at the front, and another lady just at the back there, and a gentleman behind her. Yes, madam. Uh, well, we'll take this one first, yeah, then, then that one. Hi there, I'm Elena from Ashoka, a network of social entrepreneurs. I guess my question is building on the one about the timeline. How can you factor in things like climate change? So let's say we save all these children with bed nets, but then they die from a drought in 100 years, or let's say 50 years, or maybe the climate changes so that there's more mosquitoes. And if so, wouldn't we do better by stopping to harm before doing good? All of us in the room, shouldn't we maybe de-invest money or fly less or eat less meat or whatever has an effect and take responsibility for our actions before giving money? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, a lady back there? Yeah. Hi. Uh, my name's Phoebe. I'm a management consultant. I don't work at Goldman Sachs, but sort of close. Um, and William, you may be... Um, Who do you work for? I work for Bain & Company. Um, and when I did the 80,000-hour uh, career test, it told me that I should be a management consultant, so I was... I'm very happy to learn that. My question is, um, is whether the effect of altruism philosophy has anything to say about giving in kind, so giving skills or time, and, and what you might recommend, I suppose. Thanks. Great. And the gentleman behind with his, with, his, with his hand up? Yeah, sir. Hi, my name's Crispin Kelly. I'm an architect. I'm interested in the sort of philosophical background to William's position about altruism as a part of a human condition, whether you believe in that we are altruistically, that we behave altruistically, mm-hmm. or is it just a practical approach that you're taking? Great. Lovely. Thank you very much. So, are there some things that are just so big we should just be dealing with them, like mm-hmm. climate change? Okay, great. Frankly. So, yep. uh, so, climate change is obviously a very important issue. Um, then... Yeah, there is this difficult question when you get the main damages are going to be long in the future, how, um, you know, how to prioritize that with uh, immediate, you know, helping people now. Uh, and economists have done, like, huge amounts of work now on this. Um, and the metric they tend to use is the social cost of a ton of carbon dioxide equivalent, um, where the idea is if you're um, emitting one ton of carbon dioxide or the equivalent amounts of methane or nitrous oxide or other greenhouse gases, how much is that damaging everything you care about, the kind of economy as a whole? Um, And so that's kind of some metric. There's an awful lot of disagreement about it. Uh, But I think... And the conclusion I at least came to, being very concerned by climate change, was that ultimately you were going to be able to do more good by helping the poorest people now um, rather than via climate change. Uh, mitigation. Um, I mean, there's two ways of making an impact via climate change mitigation. One is, again, going the political route, very hard to quantify, very hard to make estimates about. There, my reticence is just the kind of track record. Uh, It's an extremely crowded area, so the difference you're going to make on the margin is maybe smaller. Track record isn't so great. And then secondly is um, just by doing things, again, that are going to have a measurable impact on the amount of carbon dioxide um, emitted... Uh, there, I think, the charity Cool Earth, which um, deliberately protects um, parts of the Amazon rainforest from uh, illegal logging by working with local communities and giving them resources to buy the land. Um, 
There, that will prevent a ton of carbon dioxide emitted for about um, three pounds, by my estimate. Again, once you kind of go through all the numbers, I think that's just going to not have nearly as much of an impact as focusing on the poorest people now. Because we are making astonishing progress with respect to extreme poverty. The people who are going to be really harmed from climate change are not as poor as the poorest people now, at least um, given our best guesses. Um, so it's something that's open, but... Uh, uh, yeah, I think... Um, you put unlikely poverty to be the first. I, that's my best guess, yeah, yeah. is poverty yeah. first. You might Give think don't do harm first, in which case that's quite sympathetic. Um, in which case I'd encourage just offsetting your emissions um, via um, co-earth. Uh, you talk in the main about donations. What about the um, giving in kind, skills, volunteering, yeah, giving terrific. in other ways? How effective can that be, and does that have to pass the same tests? Okay, terrific. Yeah, so I think actually this is um, just as important as uh, giving money, as giving your time. Though I think that the main way you should think about that is in terms of your career. So I have this charity, 80,000 Hours, named after the number of hours you'll typically work in your life. It's this huge decision. It's of huge importance to the world to ensure you, cho you spend out those hours on things that do more good rather than less. And there's ve been very little attention uh, before we came along to this idea of what will make the biggest impact. Um, and I think people often don't think about it that well. And that doesn't just mean earning as much money and donating. I think you can do huge amounts of good through entrepreneurship, both non-profit and for-profit, politics, um, research, uh, and just working for very valuable organizations. Um, in terms of volunteering, though, I think things are quite a bit harder. And the reason is that uh, by volunteering, you're often imposing a cost on the charity. Namely, you have to be managed. And you're maybe adding things that you're not particularly skilled in as well, so maybe that's kind of harder. It's also harder to volunteer for international development charities rather than something locally. Um, there are exceptions to this, so if you're doing fundraising or, say, working for the Oxfam store, which is uh, quite similar to fundraising, um, that can be an exception. Some charities are very well set up for taking volunteers, um, especially advocacy organizations, so I know vegetarian advocacy organizations that make great use of volunteers, but very often you're providing much less of a benefit by volunteering for an organization than you would be if you were, say, working that extra hour and donating. And anecdotally, at least, um, I've heard of the charities take volunteers because those volunteers are subsequently more li likely to donate to the charity rather than um, because of the benefit they provide themselves. Uh, so I think your time is, yeah, to recap, time is exceptionally important. I think the most important thing, though, is to think about that in terms of how could I use my career that's like, you know, most of my working time in order to make a difference, rather than kind of volunteering on the side. Um, and finally was the human condition and altruism, which I, I want to bring Giles in on after, Will, you've, you've spoken, but <clears throat> is it part of the human condition to want to, in some manner, do good for other people? Yeah. Um, there, I just think the answer is yes. So I think, sure, most of the time people are, you know, concerned about making sure they have a good quality of life for themselves and their family. But absolutely, people are altruistic. We see it all the time. Um, see it all the time in donations to charity and people getting involved in politics and going on rallies and helping other people. Um, there's really you know, very li little in the way of, kind of arguments for thinking otherwise. And sometimes people say, oh, well, you give to charity, but that's because you want to do it, and that's not altruism. Um, but that's just, that's just now playing with terms. Um, doing something because I want to, 
if I do something because I want to do it, that's kind of trivially true. If what I want to do is help other people, then that's altruistic. It doesn't mean I'm uh, doing something just to benefit myself. And so, yeah, I think it's absolutely an important part of the human condition. Um, and, yeah, I think, you know, we should just be pitching arguments in terms of, look, this is just a way of doing good, rather than always than a hope. Cater to donors or cater to people saying this, is, this will benefit you as well. Charles, part of the human condition? Altruism? Um, I, I have a different uh, anthropology, I guess, to Will, which is I have a much darker view of the human condition than you do. So I don't think that we're all bursting to do good and, um, and all we need to be is properly channeled in the right direction um, through rational calculation. Um, I, I, I think we're, we're much darker creatures. I mean, we are... We're at the moment, when we go out and read our newspapers, the world is a complicated and difficult place. We're going to be uh, arguing about whether we should bomb Syria tomorrow. We have problems with, in the Middle East with terrorism. The, the, world is a, the world is a complicated and dark place, and the idea that we're sort of like slightly happy-go-lucky, decent people who just need to be rationally nudged in the right direction is not what I see when I see people. Um, so, I mean, how that affects your argument, I'm not quite sure. But um, it seems to me that, uh, that your, your argument works terribly well if you assume that people are generally good and just need a bit of guidance. I don't see that when I see people. I see selfishness. I see uh, um, a desire not to be concerned with the sorts of things you're talking about. It's, part, it's partly why I'm, I'm, I'm very reluctant to to criticise you, because you're one of the good guys, but um, the, the world is a, a darker and more complicated place, and I'm not sure that your, your philosophy really works in, yeah. in that sort of world. Yeah, one more thing on that. So, yeah. to define my view, basically I just think people are really malleable, so um, people can do really awful things if the social setup is right. People can do really amazing things if the social setup is right. I was, you know, convinced of all the, like, arguments that I ought to be doing loads with my life for years, and I didn't do anything about it. And it just took meeting one other person who shared my worldview, which was Toby, who I co-founded Giving What We Can With, and then I was on board. And it, so it's, sure, things are the matter of psychological blocks, but um, those can, or psychological motivations, but that can push us in either direction, I think. Giles, give us one minute. We're slightly defeated by time. Give us one minute, just summing up where you think this well, debate is going and, and, and some of the key arguments. Will's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant, and I think he's very persuasive in a whole load of things. Where I become uh, anxious is on the edges of, 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 uh, of Will's position and also on its ambition, its potential ambition, to describe the fullness of our giving. I, will, I, I think he's a brilliant critic of, of the way in which we do things, but I wouldn't want you to be in charge of absolutely everything about how we give <laughs> because I think there will be all things that would miss out on giving that wouldn't meet your criteria and I think they're terribly important and getting to that is that's my that's my 10% critique of what you do so dictator will <laughs> if everyone behaved like you would it be a huge problem it would be great um, <laughs> we'd eradicate global poverty climate change would be an easy add-on um, so okay my final minute is just that uh, everyone in this room finds themselves in what's probably the richest few percent of the world's population. If you're earning over £30,000 after tax, you're in the richest 1% of the world's population. And we got there by virtue of the luck of being born into a very rich country, um, not through any sort of hard work. 
Um, and this gives us, this is easy to be annoyed by, but it actually gives us the most amazing opportunity. Simply by targeting our time, if that's through our choice of career, um, all our money through our donations to these very most effective causes. Um, think, you know, maybe it's the measurable stuff, maybe it's deworming, maybe it's bed nets, maybe it's some forms of effective political change. We have the power to do an enormous amount of good. You can be that person who saves that child from that burning building every year of your life. You can be a superhero if you want to. Um, it's just up to you uh, whether you want to do it. Um, but I think we should. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.